like I'm glad I'm not editing this one. I tell you. <laughs> Sorry. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> Hello everyone. Welcome to another Ludic Language Pedagogy podcast. Today we are talking about a really cool recently published article in our LP journal called English Escape Using Breakout uh, Games in the Intermediate to Advanced EFL Classroom. And my name is Adam. Today, I'll be hosting. Uh, together, we have the authors of the paper and two of our editors. So without further ado, I would like to start by introducing uh, some of our authors here. I'm going to start with uh, Judith. Judith, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. I'm uh, Judith Bündgens-Kosten from Goethe University Frankfurt in Germany. So my name is Vanessa Brown, and I'm a university student at the Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany. I'm Miriam, and I'm a student at Goethe University in Frankfurt. Yeah, hi, I'm Julia. I recently graduated from Goethe University, Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Okay, the focus of this paper are breakout games. Um, you might have heard about escape games. There are two kinds of escape games. Those that take place in a physical space, like a complete room that has been decorated, um, called an escape room, and those that take place basically on in a box on a table, which are called breakout games. All escape games have the same basic features. It's a story often about being trapped somewhere and having to escape or about having to break in somewhere under a time limit and you only get the beginning of the story. And to progress in the story, you need to solve um, an itinerary of different puzzles or sub-games to unlock the next levels of games or activities or puzzles and the rest of the story. And if you succeed at going through this uh, within the time limit, then you actually get to escape in the logic of the game. Um, Commercially, you often see escape rooms where you have a whole environment where you, I don't know, you find the lock to the key under the toilet lid and you really have to search and investigate. Um, This is a little bit tricky in a school context. Uh, So we looked at breakout games which basically are escape rooms in a box and much more usable in a school context. And maybe my co-authors could give some examples of how this looked like in practice, what kind of breakout games they developed. For example, my breakout game, um, focusing on the school context, used multiple boxes within each other and also um, cell phones as devices for scanning QR codes or using the cell phone as a device to unlock a certain game or to use um, a picture that appeared on your cell phone to then connect to some kind of sheet they had on the table to connect the numbers. So they had the task physically in front of them, would scan the QR QR code, and then they would receive um, either a hint or they would receive um, the actual gameplay on the phone itself. So there's a very small space we can use to actually like engage the students and have a very interesting and fun game, even using, for example, the phones or um, one of our games also used I think, um, Julia, was your game, the uh, video in the beginning. So there's multiple va- ways we can do this in a classroom. Yeah, um, especially now with uh, multimedia. And um, I-, I don't know if we even used the intro. We were planning on doing like a video or audio intro, um, like kind of mysterious and with costumes and stuff. But um, 
we didn't have time for that, I think. <laughs> so it must have been some some other game. Um, but our game also worked with literature a lot um, because we had um, a game for a graduate class, I think, um, year, year 11, year 12, something like that. And um, we worked with Shakespeare, but um, we also had things like QR codes hidden in the boxes or hidden on the riddles um, or like, yeah, just um, blanks to fill in or different riddles to, uh, to solve. So lots of different multimedia aspects. Yeah, so uh, Julia and I were in the same group. And as Julia already explained, we tried to keep it kind of old school. So of course, uh, breakout games have the potential of, of course, fostering digital competencies, but I we didn't focus on that. Um, we had the literature, we had uh, like the old manuscripts. We tried to really uh, keep the aesthetic of uh, Shakespeare or Shakespearean times. And so, um, yeah, that was just our thing. Uh, we also, as Julia explained, uh, tried to stick to the uh, curriculum that um, was that is like pretty strict in uh, the secondary school or um, we call it like high school kind of like the German classes equivalent. Um, yeah, and that's why we try to do something that is extremely informative and uh, really dense in information that actually um, that they maybe can even use in their graduation or uh, as an introduction to the topic um, that will that they will dive in in the uh, classroom later on. Well, that's a wonderful description of all of these activities. Whose idea was it? Who came across these breakout rooms and thought, wow, I want to use this in a language learning context? Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I got, got hooked on uh, breakout games and escape rooms. Um, and if I really love something, um, I love integrating it into my teaching. So um, I applied, uh, applied for some funding from a university to be able to create a university seminar in which, on the one hand, we could experience and investigate language learning from um, escape rooms and breakout games and also on the other hand create our own games breakout games for the EFL classroom that then could be taken into schools where pupils could try out these games and give feedback to the developers. That's wonderful I love hearing about when teachers bring what they're really passionate about into their classrooms to share it with their students and it sounds a really wonderful experience for your students that you had there. I'd love to move on to the next part here about language. And I think we just started to talk about language as well. So what are the language elements? Like what is the, the target language group? What kinds of learners were you trying to, to address with this project? Uh, you can look at breakout games from two perspectives. On the one hand, there are the puzzles in the games. So if you, for example, design a breakout game, for uh, beginners, language learning beginners, let's say at primary school, you might have puzzles with a lot of vocabulary focus, form focus, and then you just add a little bit of narration and pour the breakout structure on it like chocolate on broccoli. So um, at the most basic level, uh, for total beginners, or if you um, just want to do a quick special lesson, um, um, the, the language learning focus is on the puzzles. But this is not what we did here at the seminar. 
Instead, we looked at intermediate to advanced students where the interaction of students is more interesting than what's in the content. Okay, the content is still important. If you have a bit of text and you have to read this text five times to find more and more clues for a puzzle, this is uh, a repeated reading and this has value. Also, of course, having an occasional form-focused game in there, that's not going to be uh, harmful at all. Um, but it would still be just, you know, a form-focused game, or it would just be um, repeated reading. The really fun part and the really valuable part is the cooperation and collaboration while playing the game, the interaction in the target language about the material. And that is what we mostly focused on. Now, we um, did all this in the context of a teacher training seminar for future teachers of English as a foreign language. So, of course, our natural focus was English as a foreign language in the German school system, where English instruction usually starts in third grade and students have English as a foreign language from then on till they graduate after 10 years or 13 years of schooling. Um, so that was our main focus. But in itself, there is nothing language specific about breakout games. Um, you can, of course, collaborate. You can negotiate in any language that you have available. You could even do this plurilingually. Um, you need to have a certain language level to actually do the interaction about the game in the target language entirely. But even beginners can do it partially in the target language. And of course, you can just design the game to have a narration in one language, to have the puzzles drawing on another language. Um, so there is nothing language specific in itself. Just our games were for English as a foreign language learners. All right. I feel like we're kind of segueing quite a bit into the pedagogical side of things here, perhaps inadvertently. Uh, and then maybe we could just... Uh, yeah, make it kind of work. So we were touching on a whole bunch of things here. Uh, we're talking on uh, task-based language teaching and task-based language learning and collaboration uh, versus cooperation and which different competencies that you're trying to target. Perhaps we can go into a little bit more detail here and actually officially get into the, uh, the pedagogy side of things. So uh, maybe you could go into some more detail here. Again, for instructors who are listening who might not be familiar with the task-based language teaching approach or people who might not be familiar with the different types of scaffolding that you were engaging in. So I know uh, that Judith talked about uh, the scaffolding to teachers, but what about, I also read that you were doing scaffolding amongst the students themselves and how is that working and all of that kind of stuff. So please uh, give us a little bit more insight on that. Okay, our basic starting point is uh, communicative language teaching. The idea that um, um, you do not just um, communicate in order to communicate, but also that you communicate in the target language as a means of acquiring the target language. That things like, for example, um, uh, negotiation of meaning, negotiation of form, um, of um, noticing from pushed output in the interactionist tradition are meaningful for acquisition. 
Um, that is basically our starting point. TBLT is very closely related to that, but I would be careful of claiming we actually did TBLT because depending on which definition you look at, and if you really tick off the different components of the definition, we do not fulfill that. But I think we are in the spirit of TBLT in the sense of um, it's about using language that students can freely choose. So we don't give them a list of expressions they have to use. They might get a list of expression they may use if they want, but they can freely choose what linguistic and non-linguistic means they wish to use. Um, but they use these means for a real communicative purpose. So it's not about performing uh, finding ideas. It is about actually finding ideas in order to open that darn box in front of them. So there's a real-life outcome opening the box, getting to the confetti and to the candy, and they use language in order to achieve that goal. But of course, we are not um, using a very strict TBLT framework in this. Um, we are not following, for example, uh, Willis's framework, but we are inspired by the uh, basic assumptions behind TBLT. And now into our favorite section, a bunch of us have prepared some questions and some things that we're dying to know. Hi, James here. Thank you for your wonderful uh, introduction and explanation of the, the games and how they were used. <clears throat> I have a question um, regarding the use of the games in the secondary schools. I think that this is one of the, the strongest parts of the paper. Uh, and in fact, it's one of the reasons that it, it's included in, in LLP literature is that it's, it's very rare that we see um, a game designed and then actually play tested in a real um, school context. So um, for me, that's the most in intriguing part. And so my question is based on that. And it's um, how did you get the games into the schools for other teachers that may be wanting to use games, but don't know exactly how to do it? How, could you give us a bit of explanation of how you got the games into the schools practically? How did that work? Um, yeah, maybe I could start. Um... So I don't think that our aim was to actually like, well, maybe it could be a side effect, but I don't think that primarily it was the aim to uh, get the breakout game there, advertise it there and get this, the teachers to use them in their, uh, in their classrooms. I personally, um, I work as a substitute teacher at a school and um, I asked um, an English teacher that I was close to um, whether I could, uh, yeah, get for students um, who are volunteering. Um, so it was my luck, basically, that it was already the um, the ambitious ones or the um, yeah the the ones who are willing to do uh, yeah extra curriculum whatever um, yeah to play those games. And then um, I came to school. Um, yeah, just planned um, before beforehand and we played um, the game in a separate uh, room uh, at the same time whilst there was um, another um, lesson going on basically and then I thanked them gave them chocolate and that was that <laughs> yeah um, although I think we should add that when we were doing that kind of play testing we were still in the development process so we were play testing to further develop the game and to see how challenging uh, how challenging it might be um, if there are any 
unknown or unseen challenges, if they might find it too easy, uh, too easy I like any kind of information we could gather to improve the games. Um, and I think once you've done that, once you've play tested to develop it and to kind of give it a nice finish, you could just as well take it into any normal uh, English lesson or German lesson or French, whatever, um, as long as the language level is suitable. And I think, I mean, if you have intermediate games, you can pretty much use them for the entire intermediate classroom just by scaffolding a bit. Like if you have a game at year eight level and you put in some scaffolding, you can just as well use it for year seven. And I think it's important to mention your question was getting the game to the school. In the physical sense, um, for the teachers, you don't have to um, bring 20 boxes or like huge, uh, your, your, uh, your trunk full of um, stuff. Like we were talking about students using their own cell phones and the game itself um, being made up of multiple boxes and different sizes. Exactly. You don't have to, you don't have to take big boxes or like a huge amount of, of um, things. You can really, you can really use a little amount of actual physical material to produce a very interesting gameplay. And for example, my game, Blood Red Riding Hood, um, I had a different experience playtesting. Um, this might also be what many teachers fear. Um, I had contacted multiple schools and once I had actually uh, gotten somebody to allow me to play with their students, um, last minute they had to cancel because there was a shift in the curriculum and they didn't have enough time for it anymore because the students had to pick up certain materials before the next test. So we had to do it in a um, environment with tutoring students because we were all, we, all three of us were tutors at that time. But that is also a thing you have to consider. Um, you have to have the time for it, not just the physical um, way of getting it into school, but actually integrating it into your classroom and having the time and space for it. Um, that is the special situation of this having been a university seminar that was also about developing competences in designing games, in playtesting games, and not so much a commercial product, so to say, that we try to launch into the marketplace. Um, but there are a range of um, magazines for practitioners in Germany that are actually read by extremely large numbers of teachers. And um, I recently published one of my own um, breakout games there, um, Welcome to Escapiria. And this is basically something where everything you need is in that magazine and you can photocopy it. And there's a list of stuff you need to um, put it in boxes and put on locks. And if you want, you can buy one of the commercially produced breakout material sets for schools. Or there are also explanations how you can avoid this by using digital locks instead, if you cannot buy this. And I think mm, we, we tend to make jokes about material that is photocopy already. But this is how you can get a, an extremely busy teacher who wants to try something but doesn't have the time to take a university seminar or a two-day workshop to just dip their toes into the water and see whether it works. If you can take it from a magazine, photocopy it, go to your classroom and use it, uh, you can try it out. And if you like it, you can get the additional training and the additional experience to develop your owns or modify your owns as fits your students. That is absolutely incredible information. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for, for giving me all that information there. The idea of the magazine and give them something that they can print out and use in their own classrooms, it's just so practical. Uh, so just to extrapolate that, um, 
myself, maybe others here would agree with me, but working with games as a teaching tool um, for a long time, um, I find that it, it, you can say that about, well, obviously materials there, but about games as well. It seems that a lot of the, the research field or teachers themselves are transfixed on, transfixed on games. Like what game can I use? What game, what game, what game? And not how can I teach with this? Um, so do you see the similarities there? Uh, yeah, that's my because it's, it's not about the game. But having a specific game provides a scaffold for your thinking. Uh, thinking about theoretical concepts, I don't know, about interactionism is all fun and games if you are a nerd, but most people need something more concrete um, to ledge their thinking to. And starting off from a very specific game can give you the scaffold to then move outside that. Uh, and in a way, a photocopyable um, template has the same function. It's the starting point from which you then can build your understanding and add to this. Excellent. Thank you very much. I think that um, takes us into the pedagogy section, but Jonathan? Because what, what Judith said just uh, touches on the question that I've had for a while about this paper too, is, is because you, you, you very succinctly, Judith, connected the theory behind everything that you did. And I think in the paper, you hinted at the theory and you hinted that there was theory and, and conceptual work that went into the design of these games. Um, and I, and I know there wasn't room in the paper, but I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about what were some of those theories that your students engaged with to be able to design these wonderful games? And maybe this is a question for your students as well. Maybe this is a question for your students to say, oh, like, I read this, which really helped me build my game this way. Because I think that's something we struggle with at LLP is getting people to wrestle with the theory. And in your paper, you had people going from the theory into practice, into design, into the community in such a, a, a connected way. So what, what, what were some of those, um, what were some of those theories or, or literature or ideas, uh, students or, you know, Judith, of course, that, that blew you away, that helped? Um, I mean, I something, well, yeah, I go ahead. Okay, I think it's important to note first off that um, all of us were already quite far in our university study. So we've all had the basic introduction course. We've all talked about didactics. We've all gotten to know Chomsky and a lot of big names. Um, so we had all of that, that kind of base layer there already. So we knew of concepts, we knew of, of competencies that we wanted to foster. But I think we really doubled down on like the core, core um, tools that we use in class all the time and talking about and reading about TBLT, for example, which is also mentioned in our paper and really looking at, okay, which competences do we want to foster and how can we integrate this into a classroom context in the sense of task-based language teaching? And we all um, basically, how do I say this, spread out again and then try to find all of these, um, all of these big minds and uh, really look at um, what could work for our, for our game. Julia, would you like to add something? Um, yeah, just we all had a different focus when we were writing the paper. And um, for example, the focus I had was um, cooperation and collaboration. And that was just highly interesting because you can tell that um, within a game, you have, you don't just have the game as Judith hinted at um, previously. You don't just have the tasks you read and the, um, the riddles you solve. And that's the language learning part, but you have all of the interaction that goes into it. And reading about the different kinds just also explained a lot about 
student dynamics. So for example, if you contrast cooperation and collaboration, um, on the one hand, you have this very um, almost inherently hierarchical um, practice. And on the other hand, you have the absolute need to interact. Like on the one hand, you have um, cooperation, which is just everyone does their bit and then you put it all together and you have an end product. But that's not, or at least in our case, that wasn't um, the aim. The aim was to really get people talking and just regardless of their level of language competence. So, um, I mean, it didn't always work. Sometimes you had two very strong students who just did all the work and all the talking and get others just following along. But the, the essence is still to get everyone talking, to get everyone involved. It's just wonderful to hear that. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Vanessa. Uh, like, and I think that's one of, I mean, I think that you could write another paper just about what you just said, right? Like James is laughing, but you know, we just need more papers, but it's like, if it's so amazing to hear these student teachers talking about how they deepen their knowledge through game design as well, right? That, you know, Judith, you were able to give them a, a, a place to explore those things. They went off and learned more things in order to, to manifest those in their designs. And like, it's just a system of everybody learning, everybody collaborating, everybody putting things together in new ways. So yeah, please write another paper just about what you just said. Like, I'd, I'd love to read it, seriously. Thank you. Just a few loves. I've got a few love hearts written in the in my paper here. Uh, the play the playtesting is fantastic. Um, the idea of teaching as something that's never complete and you always need to update your curriculum, give it a try, see what happens. It might fail. If it fails, debrief it, try it again. Uh, the fact that you playtested this both amongst yourselves and then in a real context is a fantastic point that I think teachers should be doing more of. M much more playtesting, much more failing, much more trying again. Uh, that was a great love heart from me. Uh, another one, the, the concept that you put in here as a uh, uh, teacher as game master is another fantastic point as well. And I think that that is something that we have a few TRPG, well, tabletop role-playing game players amongst us in um, LLP here. And they're currently exploring the idea of very specifically a teacher as a game master. So to see that echoed in, in your paper was a fantastic point. Um, the double of heart that I have here is the, the use of the L1 and the L2, I think is fantastic. Um, and you, again, I, I don't, I presume not 100% sure that you, it's not come from me, but um, we kind of evolved into this together. And that's the point that, um, of course, L1 and L2 use is fine and it's good and it can be useful. The L1 as a, as a tool to help learn about the L2, fantastic. But then I was thinking, ah, but you could do this. And it was actually written in the paper. And that's the, the bit where you mentioned that the, the evil doctor that can pretend to hear the L1. Uh, so in your case, it would be the, 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 there's a character, an NPC that can actually understand German. And if you speak German, then you'll fail the task. So uh, I, I like this very much in that the game already has rules. And what you're doing here is you're literally just adding an extra rule um, in the spirit of the class. So it's okay, you're going you're gonna to subscribe to these rules anyway. I'm just going to add a, an additional rule, which makes it more uh, aligned with my class. And, and, and the, the idea of that, um, you know, putting the rule in as part of the game to encourage L2 use is a fantastic point. So I just wanted to show my love with those uh, three things there. Thanks. 
Excellent question, James. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But that's always good to hear. So thank you. <laughs> I, actually, I'd like to build off of that. And one of the sections that really resonated with me was when you were talking a bit about hacking, cheating, and griefing. And for myself, and if you've listened to some of the other podcasts and you've heard me, heard me speak before, you know that as a boots on the ground teacher, I have failed a lot. I've tried a lot of different programs and games and activities, and I've, I've encountered a lot of people who try to cheat the system. And despite the fact as teachers, we're trying to do everything we can to create this fun educational experience. Sometimes people just throw their hands up in the air. And when I saw that in this experience, uh, I, I would, the first thing I thought is, well, as a teacher, there's definitely some limitations here, specifically if you look at like those students that you mentioned who just decided they're not going to do it or the ones who didn't really. So what did you do when you came across those situations? That's the thing that I really wanted to know. And how were they resolved? And how did you plan on, for example, in the future, what are some other ways? Like as a teacher, I'm always thinking, well, you know, if the students don't want to play the game, they can write an essay, you know, they'll sit on the side and do this kind of thing, right? Which I don't think is a really good solution for that. I know it's a fallback for a lot of teachers, but so, so what did you do and how did you deal with the situation and how did that kind of factor into this whole program where you're trying to train teachers to do this successfully? I think the situation um, even arose while um, of hacking and griefing, cheating while playtesting um, in our groups. For example, uh, I played a game and we were so frustrated at point. It was a color code that we just started trying all colors. So the result of that was then that you would have a limited amount of how many tries you have. So you would, you would um, either have some kind of penalty in the form of if you use um, more than three, you lose time or you lose a hint card. Like you can, you can, um, you can give some kind of incentive in the sense of that you lose something if you try too many tries, if you just try and go at it. Um, luckily, my playtesting went quite well. We had all of them engaged, but we made sure, for example, that um, they would only be focused on one task, would actually have to open a lock until they get another, to another task, so they could not just jump back and forth, having multiple envelopes that they can just open. But we also had the problem that one of them, um, <laughs> luckily they didn't do it, but they thought about using the internet, just Googling something. They, didn't, they then came to the conclusion quite fast so they didn't need to google but that was something we had to think about and reflect on because we're using phone of course at any point in time they can go on google and just and just find out what the solution is or look up um, a five-letter word with the word f for food or something like that but um for that we are still thinking about what we could do but an example would be penalizing cheating by either taking away time or taking away hint cards um i'd like to add that a lot of Griefing and hacking only happens in playtesting, um, like in the actual school setting. Because when we were playtesting in university class, obviously everyone knew what those games were about and didn't even try to cheat. Um, so it pretty much boils down to improv. <laughs> because like in our context, for example, I think um, Miriam did imp like had to improvise twice because there were unforeseen ways of hacking um, that we just didn't anticipate. I can't remember what they were. Can you explain? <laughs> yeah. 
so first of all, you really underestimate the willingness of even older students to cheat. I did not like it, I just did not expect that. Um, so yeah, there. So I also wrote that in uh, the walkthrough. Um, we didn't seal the envelope so we could reuse them, and um, the students wanted to uh, look into every. Uh, envelope without actually solving riddles to earn looking into the envelopes or just to use hint cards because they were there and not because they needed them and um, so of course I had to intervene when they tried to uh, look into the envelope and I it was simple explanation you cannot do that I don't think that I like right now I have no idea how to kind of in a gamified way uh, um just hinder them in doing that. Um, yeah, but with the hint cards, as Vanessa already explained, uh, I told them if you use them, five minutes will be deducted from your uh, time and as a punishment. And yeah, that's, that's it. Um, in that context, I think the idea of this magic circle is absolutely essential. Uh, if you think about soccer, if the goal is to bring the ball into the goal you just take the ball under your arm, you walk there, you shove away the goalkeeper and put the ball into the goal. But everybody knows that it's not fun if you do it that way. Or oh, it's fun once because, you know, you proved a point. But that actually the challenges are part of what makes soccer fun. And that if you cheat to the degree that you basically say, oh, I just take this thing and move it there, I just open it and look at the solutions and then I'm done, that maybe you scored, but you didn't play the game. And um, I think if we stress too much this, you need to escape fast and do not stress enough that this is actually a game in which they are immersing themselves that has a logic of its own and that following this logic is playful um, and um, can be enjoyed in its own right. So it's not actually about escaping. It is about trying to escape within the logic of the game. I think that helps a little bit. And if then um, still students actively um, boycott the game, uh, it might be a design issue. It might be that um, even they understand what they ought to be doing, but it's just so hard, it's not fun anymore. And for these cases, we need to have some ways to adapt difficulty by help cards or having an easier and, and more difficult route or some other kinds of support. Because I've played breakout games myself that were so hard, I stopped enjoying them. And then I need a little bit of assistance to move on to get to the point where I enjoy it again. Um, and that to a certain degree is not hacking. <laughs> This is modifying a game so it's actually enjoyable. Wonderful. Yeah. And kind of building upon that is I did have one answer question on top of that, which my question is, uh, and perhaps I don't think I really understood how easy or difficult it was, because on one hand, I think you're mentioning that you have these wonderful magazines where you can take some of these games and you can Xerox them and use them in your classrooms. But on the other hand, you have entire training clinics for teachers to learn how to make these games and do these things. Where between these two extremes is really the difficulty for a teacher to implement these in their classes, you know, just from an instructor's perspective? 
I think the question you are asking is how difficult is it to integrate games in your classroom? And the answer is, is it depends. You can go from minimum to maximum effort. And um, the amount of effort does not always correlate with the amount of benefit for students. But you can go from just using something ready-made, just reading a one-page description and use it in your classroom, or you can take a semester-long university class in which you really uh, develop the skill up from the ground. Um, and in between is probably the, the sweet spot. Maybe um, my co-authors could say how many hours they spent, but keep in mind that this was part of a university seminar uh, and they received credit points for this, and this was not a school reality. Uh, but how many hours do you think did you invest into your games? <laughs> That's actually a pretty tough question. Yeah, because um, we are big teams as well, so each of you invested time. I mean, we met thrice, I think, um, and each meeting lasted a couple of hours, maybe three. So I don't know, around 10 hours maybe? In total, but I think we should keep in yeah. mind that um, you invest that energy and time once and then you have a ready-to-use game that you can use time and again. And of course, breakout games aren't something you use every day or every lesson. There's something you use as an intro to a unit or an outro to a unit. It's something special um, as like a treat in the classroom so students don't get bored with the topic. So... I think, I mean, of course, you have to invest time, but it's well invested. And for example, for me, um, if you have, if you've played an escape game, if you have this mindset, if you understand how that logic works, it's very easy to get into that system. But for example, in my case, um, my parents had to play all the games. My cousin had to play the game because we were playtesting constantly just to make sure that everything worked. And they had never played escape game. For them, just even getting the concept was quite hard. So if it depends on if the teacher knows what, how this kind of logic works, the string of logic. And if they do, it is, it is honestly, it takes a matter of a few hours and you maybe have, an, have something ready to go. But I must say, I've definitely spent more than 10 hours um, on that because I just wanted to make sure um, that everything was good and just constantly reflecting on everything just takes time. But as a teacher who just, for example, uses Escaperia um, by, by Judith, um, this is something that, I would say everybody could do if they if they want to do it, but it's nothing that they can just uh, find in the break between classes and just start. It's something you have to maybe the day before read on. Uh, yes, I just wanted to add to uh, Julia's 10 hours. Maybe the 10 hours were maybe like the rough outline, the, like the plot maybe and how, how the riddles could look like. But then there's also, of course, the... Uh, the uh what is it called scrapping or oh, like when you when you um you know craft what i mean part. when you try to yes the crafting part exactly thank you um yes that's that takes a long time um where you adjust the design where you think oh okay this is too big this is too small and all that and it just takes so much it consumes so much time so uh you have to have a lot of passion and love your students to do that <laughs> But Definitely. this is, of course, not how every breakout game looks like. This is like the most extreme version of developing your own breakout game from scratch as part of your university training. So that is not how it would normally look like if you do something in a school context. For sure. Yeah, yeah Jonathan. 
I, I think that the last like five, 10 minutes have just been amazing. Like just talking about integration and, and thinking about context and all the work that goes into matching teacher and students and, 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 and games and context. Like I, I won't even ask a question like, or, or well, maybe my only question is like, will you please write a paper on that for LLP? Because that's something honestly that, that people have not talked enough about. Like what, what does the effort look like? What, what are the, um, worries that teachers have about about sinking five or ten hours into a project like that really deserves to be explicitly written up in a, in a in a short paper because what you just said is brilliant it's just you know like 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 i said earlier like judah sort of leapfrogging all the all the teaching with game stuff with her paper earlier with michael Philsecker. like here's another one just this 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 is how you do it right this is how we can bring games into the context if you just think about these different text so that's my question like or my 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 plea is just to write write a short paper like seriously two or three pages that's all i ask please seriously i have to say one of the things we did in the seminar that was absolutely essential is we first had to get everybody hooked on these games so we started the first session with playing um a commercially produced breakout game uh so they all had done this and then we had an excursion to an escape room where again everybody had to play because if you go into this, okay, let's develop one of these breakout games. I read a paper yeah. about this. It sounds like kind of interesting. You need to have, you know, struggled through one and ideally survived your own escape room or breakout game to actually understand the logic. And um, then it's also then you also have the um, um, the passion. Uh, to uh, let your students experience the same fun that you had while um, trying to ram the uh, the knife into the heart of the doll at the end of the escape room. <laughs> I mean, this is a moment I will never forget in my life, and I want other people to have the same kind of experience. That's awesome. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, <laughs> just put that in the paper too. Yeah. So we have three comments from James and two requests from Jonathan. Yes. Uh, I think we'll wrap things up here unless, well, on behalf of the LLP Journal, we're all very, very happy and honored that you submitted such a wonderful paper to us. And we look forward to at least, I think maybe Jonathan would look forward to having you guys submit another paper. Of course, we all would. And I'm sure once you've tried out these amazing games, you'll want to reach out to Judith and all of their wonderful students who came out here today and presented about these fantastic games. I'll use this to thank all of you who were involved in the uh, editing process and in the reviewing process, because um, we got a lot of help here. And that is not how academic publishing normally <laughs> works. And um, this, of course, was a very experimental paper. And I'm very happy we could get this into print. And I'm now, of course, using it in my teaching and boasting to everybody that my students published a paper in Ludic <laughs> Language Pedagogy. <laughs> so I'm very, very, very proud uh, of having been able to publish with uh, Ludic Language Pedagogy. And without the supportive process, this wouldn't have been possible. So uh, thank you for that. Absolute pleasure to hear that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's 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 a wonderful. I'm going to listen to that a couple hundred times. <laughs> we thought we yeah. we no really like yeah Judith. We can talk about that more too. Like uh, James and I really wrestled with that. Like going back and forth between uh, typical blind reviewing, open peer review. How would it work? What are the hurdles? How do you te how do you teach people to be 
collaborative in an academic environment is is not easy. So um, thank you so much for for telling us that the process went okay. Um, with uh, with your, we're, on, we're on the right track. Hey, so. we're getting we're 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 going to keep getting better. We hope with with everybody's help. I mean, as someone who's never published a paper before, for the obvious reason that we're still students. Um, well, There's, well, that's not a reason, right? Everybody um, should. Know. Sorry, sorry. You know, <laughs> but um, I think I mean you've been flattering us way too much in this podcast. Not, not at all. I think we should not we should give back the compliment because the only reason we have a coherent article is that we've had so much. Um, I mean, of course, we worked on it. Um, but the review really gave us another perspective on it and all of your comments I, I really don't think that's something that can be taken for granted for you, you know, you'll never want to publish in another journal now, now that's right well, <laughs> <Really not. laughs> alright well look let these guys get the breakfast and uh... thank you everyone it was wonderful thank to you meet so you thank you so much <laughs>